This podcast is presented by the Bet Parks online casino and sportsbook app. New customers download now and get up to $1,000 in casino bonus back if you're not a winner in your first 24 hours. See BetParks.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 in PA, New Jersey, Maryland, Michigan, or Ohio. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult to Today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation semi annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal too. Schedule a no obligation in home estimate now. Call 866 Nation or visit windownation.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. I still cannot believe that it is happening this week. And of course, if the Eagles are going to the Super Bowl, fantasy season is long, long gone, right? Oh, no, no, no. Not at DraftKings. The fantasy football season never stops there. So while the season-long league is long gone and we are sitting there kicking back, drinking beers, and rooting on the birds, it is not too late to draft a new fantasy football team and win money while doing it. Check out the brand new single-game showdown at DraftKings. It's the newest way to play one week fantasy football and drafting your team is faster than ever all you do is draft six players that's it four offensive two defensive obviously i'm all picking eagles players but you do you you can choose between public contests with big cash prizes or private contests where you can even just compete against a group of your friends so get to draftkings.com now and use promo code bgnr to play for free with your first deposit for your share of hundreds of thousands of dollars in total prizes this sunday for the big game that's promo code bgnr to compete for your share of hundreds of thousands of dollars in total prizes minimum five dollar deposit required eligibility restrictions apply see draftkings.com for details this episode of bgn radio is brought to you by clip it the hottest app that is out there watch tv make clips and share for more information check them out at clipit.tv or check them on twitter at clipit tv you're listening to bgn radio stars up over the ball this will be it Stars back to throw. He takes time. He throws over the middle. It's caught at the 15. Running hard to the 7-yard line. And down on the 7 is Jim Taylor. The game's over. The game's over. The Eagles are the champions of the world. Listen. All right, so welcome in for a special conversation here on BGN Radio. Uh, I'm Vince Quinn with you. And joining me is the author of a book called The First 50 Super Bowls, How Football Championships Were Won, and that's Ed Bankin. What's up, Ed? What's up? How you doing, man? What's going on? I'm doing good. Thanks for joining me here. Thanks for having me. It's an exciting time, definitely. Well, yeah, and, and we're here in Super Bowl season, and, and obviously the like Super Bowl is, is such a big, it's a national event. People are asking for holidays around the Super Bowl <laughs> now, you know? So it's obviously so big. Like, What is it about the Super Bowl that inspires you to write this book? 
Yeah, I got a lot of inspiration from NFL films. Um, I think a lot of us, my generation, I'm 48 years old, we grew up in the 70s and 80s when ESPN was giving birth, and they'd run a lot of the old NFL films, and they'd show the Super Bowl videos every year with John Facenda's great voice. And I always had a big thirst for history in general and for history in the NFL, and I always got into those Super Bowl videos. I learned a lot about them, so that was the beginning inspiration. I just think there's such a great story to every Super Bowl. And the game itself, from its birth to where it is now, is an incredible story. And uh, when it came time a little while back to start writing a book, I thought about how much I enjoyed following the Super Bowls and seeing those videos and getting challenged by my family with Super Bowl trivia. It made me think, well, you know, maybe that might be the right project to do. Yeah, and, and it, <laughs> that's how I feel. I'm always so obsessed in that you see all these different games. Like, so many great stories have come out of the Super Bowl. Legends are made, and, and people become household names from Super Bowls. It's just such a gigantic, massive game, and, and the impact is, is unforgettable. I think of guys like Eli Manning and having the Mario Manningham <laughs> catch and, and things like that, and it, it, it's just incredible. So uh, so doing this book, like, uh, as you begin this project, you're talking to, you've talked to people from like every team that was in a Super Bowl, right? Uh, we tried to get somebody from every team in all the games. So there are some chapters where we have about seven, eight different people. There's some where we have a little less, where we have a couple of guys. And just about except for one, at least one player from every team, winners and losers from every game in the Super Bowl. So it was exhausting. The funny thing about it was when I first tried to do this, the NFL the NFL was great. People working around the league were tremendous helping. Uh, the NFL alumni reached out, gave me a list of people. And the first day I kind of did the round of calls, I came home and you play your voicemail. And it's, again, it's a couple years ago, it's the landline still. So, And you hear... Well, let's see. Jim Taylor's on the phone. Fred the Hammer Williamson's on the phone. Roger Craig's on the phone. You got this wave of these guys who left your voicemail to do the book. Wow, this is pretty exciting. And then you realize you still had about 100 more interviews to go. So <laughs> it was exciting, but then you realize there's a lot for a project like this. Well, so who were, uh, who were some of the most interesting people to talk to as you're doing this thing? One of the most interesting, and Eagles fans, you'll forgive me that it's a cowboy, but I think you'll understand why. I, I, talking to Roger Staubach just was tremendous. I mean, he you can hate the Cowboys if you're an Eagles fan, and that's fine. And you might not like Roger Staubach for what he did as far as damage on the field. There's no question, though, he's a great person, great American serving his country. And I think Eagles fans can appreciate this. I did the interview with him in the Eagles parking lot. There was a stretch during practice where we had a couple-hour break, and that was Roger's time frame. And we could have gone on for another three hours. And it was great to hear his stories, the wins and losses. Joe Theismann, who I think anyone would enjoy an interview with, had so many interesting things to say. Uh Certainly Adam Vinatieri to get into the head of a guy who kicked two game-winning field goals. There's so many great players, and and I think some of the older guys, too. Really, some of those players who helped with the Super Bowl's origins. I was just blown away listening to their stories about how different it was back then. Well, give me one of those stories. What's what's something that blew you away? Uh, Bob Lilly talked about when the Cowboys went to Super Bowl V. Now, that was Dallas' first Super Bowl, and it's hard for NFL fans to believe this. Back then, they had a reputation for being what's called next year's champions. They kept falling short in the playoffs all those years. He told me that they were in Miami for Super Bowl V, and they get to Miami for the Super Bowl, 
And one of the distractions they had is people kept knocking on the hotel room door and checking in, wanted an autograph, good luck to the game. People using their phones, calling them late at night. They just fans in general, which would be unheard of right now because you couldn't even get near a hotel of a Super Bowl team. And they said the Colts had gone through it two years ago. They were a little more ready for it. Even back then, that Super Bowl hype was still really in full force. That's amazing. Now, uh, doing all these Super Bowls too, like – yeah, you get uh, so many. Just I'm trying to think of the right way to hit. You, you have like, well, you know, how about this? With with all the games that you're going through with all these Super Bowls, are, are there any games specifically that stuck out to you as you went and researched all these games? Yeah, so uh, there were a few. One of them that stuck out to me was Super Bowl 13. To me, that was probably the greatest collection of talent for one football game. That was the Steelers and Cowboys at the height of kind of their empires in the 70s. Dallas, that team in the 70s, they won two Super Bowls. The Steelers won four, beat the Cowboys twice. It was such a dramatic game, but you could tell, and I know Eagles fans won't be crying about this, the pain in the Cowboys' voices still from losing (laughs) those games. They talk about how, even when they get together, they still talk about how frustrating it was to lose that Super Bowl because those were probably those two teams' best teams of that decade and if the Cowboys win one of those games against the Steelers it's an even co-champion of the 70s but the fact that there are so many stars in that game has so many angles with Jackie Smith dropping what would have been a touchdown pass and all these things that went against Dallas and then the, the comeback at the end and it's 35-31 just to and Hollywood Henderson, who we talked to about the trash talking with Bradshaw and Franco. There were so many side stories to that one in particular. That one was really one of the more fascinating ones to research. Yeah, now um, I'm trying to think of some of the other, like, well, you're a Bills fan. You had to say that publicly on, on, on Bleeding Green Nation. Like, yeah. I grew up with I grew up in Buffalo as a child, so I used to go to see the Bills games. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so so you used to go to all the Bills games, and and you've gone through the Bills Super Bowls, and and it's a similar feel to Philadelphia in a sense because it was all the NFC Championship games, and then and ultimately a Super Bowl, and they fall short. So like you went through a series, a similar thing in Buffalo. What was it like going and looking at all of those Buffalo teams? wasn't thrilling looking at every play of every game of those four Super Bowls they lost. To be honest, it brought back in my college years and, and a little bit after some painful memories. I was already in the Delaware Valley back by then. But, of course, especially because they were playing the Giants and the Redskins and the Cowboys, I wanted Buffalo to win. Um, we did talk to Jim Kelly. We talked to Marv Levy. And we talked to James Lofton. Lofton was in the first three. And Kelly and Levy, of course, were in all four. And I, I was very impressed with how open they were about a lot of things that went wrong. And, and one thing about Marv, who was just such a great general, Gentlemen, you could feel the frustration for a coach, even though he wouldn't admit it. Marv can put out a game plan. He can't coach nine turnovers. And that's what happened in Super Bowl 27 when the Cowboys came in. And one thing I was struck with about those Bills teams, the players I interviewed from the Giants, the Redskins, and the Cowboys, you'd think, well, maybe they dance on Buffalo's grave a little bit. They have tremendous respect, and they really echoed that through the book about the Bills game, about those Bills teams. In fact, one of the guys we talked to was Leon Lett, who, of course, had the famous fumble at the end of Super Bowl 27. He was celebrating up 52-17, and Don Beebe caught him. He talked so much about how that play really influenced his life. How he now he's a defensive line coach for Dallas. How he teaches his players to finish the play. But I was impressed with the respect the other players for for Super Bowl 25. We had Carl Banks, we had Bart Oates from the Giants, we had Mark Rippon and Dexter Manley and. Russ Grimm for the Redskins in Super Bowl 26. And the Cowboys, in addition to Leon Lett, we had Tony Casillas, we had Larry Brown, who had some big moments in Super Bowl 30 as well against Pittsburgh. Uh, That Bills team, I think, the further you get away from time, the more respected they are by everybody. Well, 
that's, and that's the, that's the interesting thing about it is there is a lot of love and affection for the Bills and, and their team that lost four Super Bowls, right? Right. So it, it, it's it's fascinating. Now, for some people, a lot of people are handling it graciously when they lose Super Bowls. Is there anybody when you're when you're going through these teams that didn't handle it graciously? Uh, all the players that lost Super Bowls were gracious enough to talk about it. I'll tell you one guy who had a hard time getting a lot of it out was Jim Marshall, who we talked to. Now, Jim Marshall played on all four of those Viking Super Bowls. They didn't lose four in a row, but they lost Super Bowl four. They lost Super Bowl eight. They lost Super Bowl ten, and they lost Super Bowl eleven. And they really weren't in any of those games. The Chiefs blew them out in the first one. Then they got just manhandled by the Dolphins the year after Miami's perfect season, lost to the Steelers as they started their dynasty, and then just got wiped out by the Raiders. And one of the things Jim said is, I could talk about some general things, but I really kind of wiped some of the specific plays out of my memory bank. So, uh, you know, that again, that's another great example of, like we were just talking about with the Bills, that Vikings team was a great team. They had one of the great front lines defensively of all time. Uh, The first year was Joe Kappa. The other three years, they had Fran Tarkenton, a quarterback. They had Chuck Foreman. It was a great team. They won a lot of divisions. Bud Grant, their coach, rightfully is in the Hall of Fame, but... People remember the four Super Bowls. They weren't really competitive for the most part. They were close with Pittsburgh for a little bit, but blown away in the other ones. Yeah, so, well... Are there any other, like, was there anything around those teams that fascinated? Because honestly, I've never heard, I didn't realize that the Vikings even were in four Super Bowls and had like that. And when you're in four Super Bowls, that's an opportunity to be a dynasty, you know? Uh, they could have been like the Steelers and the Cowboys, like you were just talking about a couple of minutes ago. So, uh, are there any details about those teams you could tell me that are, you know, anything worthwhile? About the ones that lost you? Those mean. Vikings teams, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I think one of the things that came away specifically for that Vikings team, even though the first one was in the late 60s, The 70s may have had the best group of teams ever in any decade in the NFL because you had the Steelers, who were the the team of the decade. You had the Cowboys, which probably any other year would have won more than two Super Bowls or any other decade. The Vikings won a ton of division titles, went to all those Super Bowls. The Rams won a ton of division titles. They finally got to a Super Bowl in the 79 season. In the AFC, you had Houston, the Houston Oilers rising at the end. You had the Raiders, who won a Super Bowl and won just about everything else every other year. Then you had teams like the Dolphins, who were a dynasty for two years and unbeaten. Then you had up-and-coming teams like the Chargers. I think the Vikings were a victim of being in the wrong decade at the wrong time because there were so many good teams. And that's one of the things I got in perspective of that is, well, look who they played. I mean, they played a Chiefs team that was very good, but they played a Miami team that was part of a two-year dynasty run. They played the Steelers, who were the team of the decade, and they played a Raiders team that was great. So there were that many teams. Some of these teams just, I think by the fact you see a team that good, shows you and it gives you an appreciation for the Vikings and the Bills and the Broncos before they started winning, just how hard it is to get to a Super Bowl in the first place. Yeah, it is so incredibly, ridiculously hard, and that doesn't get appreciated for all these teams that lose, you know? It's just just to get there. You remember the last game, and you know the Bills, of course, People for people who were around back then, the way they were treated, the way they were, the, the jokes and the way they were picked on, I mean, the Eagles, I, I guess, were kind of a poor man's Bills in that, they went to five NFC championships, lost four. The Bills went four and one. They lost to the Bengals before their four-year run. And so those teams, I think, as time goes on, people say, wow, and it's not you lost four Super Bowls, it's you got to four Super Bowls. The Broncos, before they turned things around with John Elway, they lost one of the 70s, and they, they then they lost a bunch in the 80s, but they lost, they lost to the Giants, who had a great team in 86. They were blown out by Doug Williams and the Redskins. So they lost to some good teams. Then they played maybe one of the best teams ever, San Francisco, and lost two, but it is very hard just to get there. 
Well, yeah, so now you're playing against all of these great teams and the teams that get there are great teams, even when they're losers. And so, like, as you're studying all of these Super Bowl teams, and you studied, what, 100 of them, right? <laughs> yeah, there, like, there was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, going through all of those teams, are, are there any certain qualities you see in, like, this makes a great team? You know, are there any connections there? All right, well, first and foremost, obviously, you have to have the talent. I was impressed, too, by, you know, people talk about great coaches, it's more than just, all right, this coach was a great coach. He knew how to do the X's nose. He knew how to motivate us. He knew how to win. There are intangibles, too. We talked to Dick Vermeil, uh, and obviously he talked about what went wrong with the Eagles in Super Bowl 15. But then he got the Rams back in Super Bowl 34. And we know Dick Vermeil was very tough on his players here in Philadelphia. He learned from that. Super Bowl 34, he sent the team ahead. He came a day later. He let the team sort of, quote-unquote, run practice. He and the coaches stayed back. It was a one-week stretch in between. Let the coaches come up with a game plan. And that just shows how coaches kind of get a feel for their players, and they know really how to let them function. All of the Steelers we talked to, the the praise they had for Chuck Noll, who maybe, if this makes any sense, one of the most underrated great coaches of all time. The way he set the tone, the way he let them be men, but made sure they they got down to business. The first time to make the Super Bowl, he let them go party in New Orleans all week. All right, by Thursday, curfews earlier, get ready. So these coaches who set the themes, there's a greatness not just in their ability to outsmart the other coach, it's their ability to get their players in the right mindset. So that's one of the things too, like because you get players at that time, and the Super Bowl scene now is so crazy. You've got media days, and it's just like thousands of reporters everywhere. Uh, it's such a tough challenge for coaches to get those guys and and get them through all of that. You know, it's it's crazy. You know, it's funny you mentioned about the media days now and and all the attention. Super Bowl one, which of course didn't have the same hype as this one. Vince Lombardi, instead of taking his team down to Los Angeles, they played in the LA Coliseum for Super Bowl one. He kept his team in another part of California, kind of kept them isolated. So he took a whole different approach. Back then, you didn't have to come down for a big media day. So coaches approach things differently, and it's such a different kind of hype now. At the same time, this generation is used to this kind of hype. They grew up watching Super Bowls where there was this kind of hype and this much on the media day, and it's very different now than it was back then. But it is an adjustment, really, for a lot of people, especially in it for the first time. Well, and have you seen, then, in this case, like an adjustment over the years from going from Super Bowl one up to today, uh, a, an adjustment in terms of your average coach that's making their way to the Super Bowl and how they handle their teams? I think, actually, it's more circumstances. We just referred to Super Bowl one. Lombardi was a nervous wreck. It was the first meeting between the AFL champion and the NFL champion. Everybody expected the Packers to win that game by 100 points. Everybody in the league said, you know, good luck, show them how inferior they are. And he was a nervous wreck. He said, we talked to Jerry Kramer, who was a part of those great Super Bowls, and Dave Robinson, who has some South Jersey ties, also on those two Packers teams. Kramer said he saw Lombardi doing an interview with Frank Gifford on CBS before the game, and he was shaking. Because that was, this is the great Vince Lombardi. That's what was at stake because the whole league's reputation is on the line. It's a little different than maybe today where there's not that battle for league supremacy. There's the AFC and the NFC, but you're playing to win for your team, for your city. It's a little different. Now, did that, did that mentality last for a while? Because when you get two leagues and you do merge them together, like was that a rivalry for a while? Oh, it was. Uh, that's really where the Super Bowl was born, just for a little history of that. When the AFL came around in 1960, the NFL kind of laughed it off and they had poor attendance. Then the AFL got a TV contract with, and then started to build a little more when they got a bigger deal with NBC. 
and the league started to become competitive as far as when you when you're drafted. Joe Namath was probably the, the big chip that fell because he was drafted by the Cardinals and the Jets decided to go to the AFL and go to New York. We were fortunate enough to talk to Mike Curtis, the great Colts linebacker who did the forward for the book. And it gives you a perspective that the Super Bowl's roots aren't about what we see now. It's about two very proud leagues for two different reasons. An older league, an established league, and then the new kids on the block, so to speak, the AFL, which was a different kind of league, trying to prove that they were on the same footing. And for those guys, league supremacy meant everything. When the Packers won the first two, everyone said, well, that goes to the norm. The NFL easily defeats the AFL. Before Super Bowl three, there was talk about changing the format when the leagues had already agreed to merge, about trying to make it just a general championship. And then Joe Namath and the Jets beat the Colts. The Colts' pain from that still lingers. And we talked to a lot of Baltimore Colts from Super Bowl three. We kind of gave the Colts' perspective, even a little more in the Jets' perspective. Mike Curtis, Rick Volk, Sam Ball, a lot of guys on that team. The, the, the pain of letting down the league to this day is something that still stings. And by the next year, the Chiefs blow out the Vikings, so the day the NFL dies, it gets even, 2-2 two and two in Super Bowls. Interesting. Now, you, you mentioned Joe Namath, and Joe Namath obviously calls the win for the Super Bowl, which is like a, a big, iconic thing. So, like, going through all of these 50 Super Bowls, are, are there iconic moments that really just, like, stuck with you? Oh, absolutely. Um, and Randy Beverly actually did talk to us. who had a great game that day for the Jets, actually, a New Jersey guy, had a big interception in that game. He said when Joe Namath said that, they were like, oh, good for you, Joe. We're glad. That's what we've been feeling all week. We Eubank, the Jets head coach, wasn't as happy with Joe Namath, that's for sure. But they were looking at one of the things that stuck out. They were looking at film all week. And now, now that you go ahead to today, you would have thought it back then when the Colts were such a big favorite. You say, well, they looked at the film. It's just, well, how much are we going to beat these guys by? This is going to be easy. They're doing the same thing. We, we have a, a short passing game that can counter with that. So there were a lot of moments. Uh, obviously, the, the Adam Vinatieri and not only him, but Jim O'Brien talking about his game-winning kick in Super Bowl five, going through that step-by-step. Step. There were great plays. Uh, I just mentioned the Jackie Smith drop by Dallas in Super Bowl thirteen. The Cowboys could run that play 10 times. The Steelers 10 times wouldn't be able to defend it. It just was the ball was dropped. The Jack Squirek interception in Super Bowl eighteen for for the Raiders that pretty much sealed that Super Bowl. Joe Theismann takes me into the sidelines. Blow by blow is discussion with Joe Gibbs, how he didn't want Joe Gibbs to run that play, but he didn't want to question Joe Gibbs. Sure enough, it was the backbreaker that game. So, like, talking about Super Bowls here and going into uh, all of these different teams, who's the greatest team that you've seen in a Super Bowl? Like, who's the greatest team of all time if you had to pick one? That's a great, great question. I I could first put a couple finalists in. You know, I saw the 78 Steelers uh, as a youngster. They're right up there. You could take almost one from each decade. I, I, to this day, if you want to go by a single season, the best team I've seen is the 85 Bears because that defense was just so dominating. And as we talk about in that book, and we did talk to Mike Singletary and Dan Hampton about that defense, but their offense wasn't bad either. They had Jim McMahon, a quarterback, who was hurt half the year when he was healthy. That offense could score a lot of points too. They were the most dominating team I've seen in a single season. Overall, if you talk about a team, I think the 49ers in the 80s are the best team I've seen. They won two of their Super Bowls. They won four in the 80s. Two of them, the games were just so impressively dominating. They went 15-1 and one of the regular season, Super Bowl 19. They blow out Dan Marino and the Dolphins, who a lot of people thought were unstoppable. And, and when they murdered the Broncos in Super Bowl 24, I mean, the biggest blowout in Super Bowl history, the game was over before it started. It was almost like watching, if you were a 
concert pianist. It was almost like watching perfection on the music stage. It, it just was amazing to see what Joe Montana could do. Man, yeah, Joe Montana, and and obviously now all those conversations go to Brady. And so, like, did you notice any parallels studying these Super Bowls between Brady and Montana? Yes. Uh, first of all, they both have a lot of rings on their fingers. That's a, that's a big one. Uh, obviously, their ability to stay cool in crunch time. Uh, you know, the reason Joe Montana is called Joe Cool. There's a good reason for that because a couple of those Super Bowls were blowouts. Super Bowl twenty three, he gets the ball with a penalty. Inside his own 20, he's got to take his team downfield. And as Roger Craig talks about in the book, they get in the huddle and Joe Montana goes, hey, look, there's John Candy up there in the stands. Check that out. John Candy's there. And he started talking about some other stuff. So he already knew how to loosen his team up. And they'd been through it before. And so for him, it's just execution. You watch that drive. Every pass is right on the money. His only incompletion is when he had to throw one out of bounds and he was starting to hyperventilate. Every other pass in that drive was a completion, and they were perfect throws. And when you look at Brady, he had to do a game-winning drive in his first Super Bowl as a rookie when a lot of people thought they'd take a knee against the Rams. Down the field they go, stays cool, stays calm, does the same thing against the Panthers when the game's tied, takes his team downfield. Uh, the ability to stay cool under the spotlight, and you will see – with some of the Super Bowl teams that didn't do so well, it's the opposite. The mistakes some of the great players in the game made, what Montana and Brady have done, it's just unbelievable. Well, yeah, so let's talk about teams that have made mistakes in the Super Bowl because uh, obviously just last year and uh, you had the Atlanta Falcons with a huge, massive choke job. And so uh, like, where does that compare to other Super Bowls? The mistakes that teams make, it can almost be like a disease running its course. When things start to go downhill, especially if you were like the Buffalo Bills and you lost four in a row, it's almost as if you're just waiting for something bad to happen. The Bills actually tried to deny that through some of their mistakes that they weren't saying, here we go again. The Cowboys talked just again. They were very respectful of the Bills. The second time they beat Buffalo... They're losing 13-6. Thurman Thomas fumbles. Leon Lett strips him. James Washington runs it back for a touchdown. It's still 13-13. One of the Cowboys told us, if you look to the Bills, he had the look, the, the players had the look of like a boxer who was glassy-eyed, who had just taken kind of that punch that's a shock to the system, and you could see the, oh, no, here we go again. I think you could get that sense with Jim Marshall and the Vikings as well. Wow. So, uh I want to go back to the, the Patriots here for a minute because th- there's been reports recently about New England and they're falling apart and all, and all this stuff. And, and, I believe it when I see it, by the way. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I got to see it happen first. But uh, did you get any nuggets about Bill Belichick and the way he, you know, anything about him and, and Super Bowls here? Yeah, one of the ones that stood out was Super Bowl 38. That was the year before the Eagles lost to the Patriots. That's when the Patriots beat the Panthers. People may forget that. And we talked to Dion Branch along with Adam Vinatieri. And Dion Branch was the MVP against the Eagles, had a Tremendous game in Super Bowl 38 as well. They started that year, people may not have remembered, Laura Malloy, the great safety, was cut. He goes to Buffalo. The Bills blow the Patriots out. The Patriots are wobbling at the beginning of the year, 2-2, two and two, and there are reports that the players hate Bill Belichick, and there's a mutiny going on there, and they're, they're not going to play for him. And Deion Brandt said they were just laughing at that in the locker room. They looked at that and said, yeah, we don't know where that's coming from. We don't hate our coach. It was a shock that he cut one of the popular players, but they didn't turn on Bill Belichick. Sure enough, they were 2-2. Two and two. What they finished that year? 14-2 and two in the regular season. They go to the Super Bowl. They beat the Panthers in just one of the all-time great Super Bowls with a thrilling ending again with Vinatieri hitting the game-winning field goals. So I think sometimes perception outside – it's a reminder perception outside the locker room 
is a little different than what people are going through inside the locker room. I'll give you one other example. The opposite end is that Tom Landry was almost robotic. He didn't have that same affection toward his players until after their careers. They were playing the Broncos at Super Bowl twelve. And Roger Staubach tells Butch Johnson, look, if the defender does this, I want you to go deep instead of going through the middle. He does. He catches a touchdown pass, comes to the sideline. And Tom Landry said, what'd you run that for? You weren't supposed to run down the field. You're supposed to run over the middle. And they're like, you know, coach, we scored a touchdown. <laughs> so it's different ways how coaches handle things to success. And for the teams that, that don't have that success, have you ever seen uh, certain strife in a team in the locker room before a Super Bowl? Did any, did any of that ever happen? Yeah, and that's a great point to bring up. The one that struck me when talking to Rich Gannon was Super Bowl 37. And by the way, Eagles fans, this is going to frustrate you more because if you hear what happened to the Raiders and read about it in the book, you're going to feel more and more convinced that the Eagles have beaten Tampa in 2002. They win the Super Bowl that year. Rich Gannon was very open with us about that Raider team. It was the year after John Gruden left, and of course he went to Tampa, the team that they lost to in the Super Bowl. He's, there were a lot of professionals on the Raider team, veterans like Tim Brown, Jerry Rice, some of the older guys, and, and Gannon, who went about very businesslike in San Diego. A lot of the other Raiders, uh, not the case. Uh, to this day, Gannon was very upset the fact that a lot of his teammates decided to go out into the night and into the morning and maybe didn't really do what you needed to do, especially in a one-week year that year, to get ready for the Super Bowl. And he mentioned the loss of Gruden. At halftime, they're getting blown out. They go in the locker room, and Bill Callahan really doesn't say anything, the coach of the Raiders. He's waiting for the coach. They're all waiting for the coach to try to say something, to turn something around. And he said, we handled halftime terribly. And, and for the other perspective, for teams that are going well – it's a little different. Uh, Rondé Barber talked about he was having such a good time, he went out and peeked at the halftime show a little bit. So, And one other note with that, too, it's amazing that outside perspective, when the Broncos were losing to the Giants in Super Bowl, tw- in Super Bowl 21, Vance Johnson, the great receiver, told us, John Elway's looking at the TV at halftime. Terry Bradshaw's on CBS, who was not a big Elway fan at the time, the Broncos were winning 10-9, but saying John Elway's not going to have a good second half. He traditionally you know, folds in these moments. And that got John Elway upset. But why he would be worried about that and have that in his head at halftime, it's just what you said. It's a very different perspective of what goes on in that locker room. So interesting. Now, the, the thing i got to ask you, we got to do this now. we got to talk a little bit about the Eagles in the Super Bowl. And not two unhappy endings, I know. Well, two unhappy endings. And uh, i, I got to ask you, this is, this is the question, Ed. Did Donovan McNabb throw up? That is alluded to in that book. I don't want to give too much away. Um, You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. This is a fascinating discussion about this. But the Eagles played a regular season game in Jacksonville that year, and Donovan did throw up. It's on NFL Films. If you don't have an appetite for it, you can watch it. Um, There was a moment before that drive where he took a pretty hard hit in that game. And there was a sense, according to – we talked to our buddy Ike Reese, who, who talked to us a little bit about that, and also Greg Lewis, who had the touchdown catch that maybe he wasn't really right since taking that hit. And you're talking about a Super Bowl with the nerves to begin with. You're driving your team down the field. It's in Florida. It's already warm down there. You've taken a shot to the midsection to begin with. You'd think maybe that would cause someone to regurgitate a little bit going downfield. You're already exhausted. Your body's drained. But the other thing about that drive, it was interesting to get Greg Lewis and Ike Reese's perspective on the fact that that drive took so long and that it took so much time off the clock, which in pleasant disbelief for the Patriots, they weren't complaining about. 
Yeah, of course not. And, and classic Andy Reid, my God. Uh, and he's still doing it. Andy Reid's still with the clock management. Now. Well, I, I did say they're, the defense is on the sideline. They're trying to figure things out. And they're looking up at the clock and they're thinking, you know, come on, guys, get, get, get moving here a little bit. And so that obviously was a big reason why that game ended the way it did. Well, another reason, especially here in Philadelphia, that you would say that the game ended the way it did was because the Patriots were cheating. Now, did, did you get any information on that? I got some bitterness from our friend Ike, and I can understand it because you play a game like that, you lose by three points, and then you find out these allegations come out. Uh, Certainly there was some frustration by the Eagles, the fact that not only did this come out afterwards, but that some of the evidence mysteriously disappeared. So there is a lot of frustration, and I can't blame the Eagles for feeling that way. Look, the 2004 Eagles... They had a heck of a team. And, and, you know, you say that for any team that makes the Super Bowl. We know how good that team was. Going into that Super Bowl, it looked like an even matchup. The Patriots had the experience being there before. One of the things about that game was the Eagles had a lot of opportunities early. That's something that's talked about in this book. If you look back at some of the stakes that were made, L.J. Smith fumbled. Donovan threw an interception. A penalty gave him another chance. And then there's another turnover. Those mistakes early gave the Patriots time to figure out what to do. You give, you keep the Patriots in the game, they will find a way to beat you. Yeah, and they've done it so many times. And so for the Eagles making all these mistakes and ended up costing themselves a Super Bowl, and they haven't been back since. Um, you know, it, it's so frustrating. But for that game, like w- one of the great stories uh, of that game was Terrell Owens, right? You go yes. back and you think of the miraculous return that L- he had. A lot on that in the book leading up to, his, the, to the game, as a matter of fact, on that subject. Oh, great. And, and by the way, the book is called The First 50 Super Bowls, How Football's Championships Were Won. And this is Ed Benkin that's here with me. So it, you have this miraculous run from the Eagles and they've got uh, T.O. on the comeback and all that. Anything about the Patriots team from that year that sticks out to you? Yeah, I mean, that New England team, again, was facing the pressure of trying to make it three out of four. There was something that was actually documented on the America's Game about this that I talked to the Patriots about, is that Bill Belichick, the day of the game, got a hold of the parade plans here in Philadelphia, that somehow he got a hold of about like how the parade's going down Broad Street, so he has the last meeting of the year, and Deion Branch says, what a perfect way to end the year. He comes out and says, with a big diagram, just want you to all know what's going on in Philadelphia this week. Here's the parade route. It's going to start right here. And Bill Belichick starts diagramming what would have been the parade route. And Deion Brandt said it was the perfect way to end the meeting. That Again, the genius, whether you like him or not, of Bill Belichick, uh, of coming up with something like that. For Deion Branch, it was the MVP of that game. One thing that stood out, there was a play late in the game that kept a New England drive alive, that, kept, that got him the field goal to put him up by 10. He knows Sheldon Brown. He's friends with Sheldon Brown. They're the same agent. You watch the play. Sheldon Brown could not have more perfect coverage. To this day, Deion Branch still doesn't know how he made the catch. It was a perfect throw by Brady. You see the Patriots on the sidelines, almost disbelief. That was one of the biggest plays in the game that kept the drive alive. Man, now, I'm, I'm not over the parade thing by Belichick. It's just so masterful. Well, anything he can come, he finds every advantage he can. And that wasn't something the Eagles did wrong. I mean, somehow there's got to be some kind of public file about, okay, you have to plan for a parade if the team wins. Every, right now in Minnesota and New Orleans and Philadelphia and anywhere when you go into a playoff, you start planning it out. Well, just in case they win, you have to make plans for that. And so, you know, Belichick got a hold of that. Getting back to the Patriots' perspective from that year, they had gone through the rougher year the year before with the like we mentioned before, Lauren Malloy getting cut, the slow start, the rumors about Belichick, which weren't true, losing the team. So they were a lot more relaxed going into that season. So you have a dynasty there in the New England Patriots. You have an Eagles team that ends up blowing it 
Uh, <laughs> they and they, you know, they literally vomit the game away. Perhaps, perhaps we'll find out in the book. <laughs> but uh, let, let's go back to the eighty team. Then you've yes. got the Eagles against the Raiders. What can you tell me about that? Well, we'll start with what led up to it. I think everyone knows one of the more famous parts about that Super Bowl was the Raiders got to go out and party all week. The Eagles didn't. Dick Vermeil was very strict. We talked to actually we talked to some great players from both those teams. From the Eagles' perspective, we did talk to Dick Vermeil, Harold Carmichael, and John Bunning, who was a tremendous linebacker, wound up coaching at now Rowan, formerly Glassboro State. The Patriots, or rather the Raiders, we got information from Rod Martin, who had three interceptions in that game, and Cliff Branch, who had a big touchdown catch, great receiver. The Raiders had played the Eagles that year in the regular season at the Vet. It was a cold December day. Everyone knows the Vet AstroTurf was just cement back then. The Raiders lost that game. In fact, Jim Plunkett got sacked eight times in that game. But the Raiders said when they left that field, they already knew they were kind of on a roll, that they could see the Eagles again, and they felt that they could beat them the second time around. They had kind of figured things out a little bit. Now, from the Eagles' perspective, we talked about how Dick Vermeil acted with the Rams, keeping it loose. Media day, two-a-day practices. Friday, the day before the game, John Bunning said they had the toughest Dick Vermeil practice they've ever had during his time with the Eagles. And that's saying something, considering how tough he was. Vermeil's perspective is during his college days coaching, he won a championship by working his team hard all week. He's going to do the same thing with the Eagles. One thing John told us, they were so tight. First play from scrimmage, he just fell down. He said it was nerves. He, there was a pass play by the Raiders. He just fell down. He said it completely was nerves. And ironically, Vermeil and Carmichael tried to downplay. They just said, well, they didn't execute as well. John was very straight about it, that, that they were wound up heading into that game. Well, I, if I remember, because I, I read a little bit about that Super Bowl, and, and one of the things I heard is that from the Raiders' side, they could kind of feel that, and they were pretty loose as a team, right? They were very loose. They'd really been loose all year because, I mean, people think how great the Raiders were in the 70s, their perennial contenders. Ironically, that was supposed to be a year where they were rebuilding. And Rob Martin's a great example of that. He has three interceptions against the Eagles. He got cut before the season, then was brought back. He was sent over to San Francisco, came back, and obviously had a great Super Bowl and a great run with them. But the Raiders were loose. They had a coach in Tom Flores, another underrated great coach who kept them very loose throughout the week. But at one point in the season, they were 2-3. and three. Dan Pastorini, the quarterback, breaks his leg, and in comes Jim Plunkett, who resurrects his career and has a great Super Bowl against the Eagles. They were loose, and... I will give one. I'll give a kind of something in the book. I'll give away. It's a bit of a painful moment for the Eagles, which I didn't realize till Dick Vermeil told me. Dick Vermeil was far from crying sour grapes. He said straight out, the, "The Raiders deserve that game. They played better. There's no question about that." There was a big play in that game in the second quarter after an Eagles touchdown was wiped out by a penalty. Kenny King makes a catch and run 80 yards for a touchdown. Some guy named Herm Edwards tried to knock the ball down. It was just just over his fingertips. You watch the replay of that game. Carl Harrison, the big Eagles defensive tackle. He not only gets face masked on that play, he gets taken down by the face mask right near one of the officials. Didn't make the call. Touchdown shouldn't have counted. 14 nothing. really kind of got the Raiders rolling. Oh, man, what a shame. And that's, that's life in Philadelphia, man, I got to tell you. <laughs> uh, now, just for fun here, uh, with the Eagles team this year, they went 13-3, and and they were dominating people through most of the season. Uh, is there like Did that feel like a Super Bowl team? Did they match up with some of these Eagles teams of the past? It did. I mean, the one big difference 
between 2004, 2004, look, the Eagles were the best team. The NFC did not have a good year. They played a Vikings team that was, I think, 7-8-1 in the regular season. They beat an Atlanta team that wasn't a great 11-5. This year, the NFC's better. The Vikings are good. The Saints are good. And even the Rams, who went out early, obviously are a good team. The Panthers had a decent team. The Eagles had a great game with them this year. The, the big reason why you compare, and maybe more so the other Super Bowl teams, is the quarterback. Now, Donovan, as of this moment, we'll see how Carson's career is done. You'd think he's going to pass him. Donovan was probably the best quarterback ever to play in an Eagles uniform, and there have been some really good ones. Jaworski had a stretch where he played at a high level, was an MVP in 1980, but Carson's just special. And that, that's the one thing Eagles fans could hope for as this year plays out. No matter what, as long as Carson Wentz stays healthy, you have about a decade of a special quarterback who gives you a chance to win every year. They had the look of a team... The way they play, not just with the quarterback, the way they play defensively. Better skill players. Then Ajayi, you get the running game going. You've got half of your offensive line are, are pro bowlers. Yeah, they did have that look this year. Now, last thing before I let you go, any other uh, maybe little stories or, or anything from the book that, that you'd like to share? I'll, I'll share a couple of them with you quickly. Um Boomer Esiason leads the Bengals to a lead over the 49ers in Super Bowl twenty three. It's 16-13 with a little over three minutes left. So while the 49ers and Joe Montana start the great drive, these three guys, four guys in suits come up to Boomer, and he told we talked to Boomer Sison about it. He told me they're from Disney World. And so he's watching this game, and they're saying, look, Boomer, you know your lines here because we're going to have you here for the commercial here. So he's watching the Super Bowl on the sidelines, watching everything he's worked for, and they're getting makeup ready. And you know, he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm going to Disney World. I'm going to Disneyland. He's, so Jerry Rice catches a pass inside the 20, and Boomer turns around, and they're running to the other sideline. They're running to the San Francisco sideline to go get Jerry Rice. And that's when Boomer said, I, I guess I'm not going to Disney World. And oh, there, was, there was one more, an, another Eagle favorite, Cowboys lineman Randy White. Uh, when he, who was, by the way, great to talk to. When he first played with the Cowboys, his first year he was a rookie, a special teamer, a linebacker, lost in Super Bowl 10 to the Steelers, who were favored that year. And you know, Pittsburgh won 21-17. Randy White said, some of the rookies got off the team bus. They said, you need to go with the police escort. He sits in the police escort, and this guy with long hair taps him on the shoulder and said, by the way, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. My name's Willie Nelson. Nice to meet you. So Randy White says they get back to the hotel, and look, I'll be the first to admit, I know zero about country music, but I know there was a country music extravaganza to drown the Cowboys' sorrows, and Randy White gets called up to sing a duet with Willie Nelson, and he said he kind of knew that the Cowboys did things a little differently than the rest of the NFL. So that's how the Cowboys drowned their sorrows after losing Super Bowl ten. So there's a lot more of those in the book. But it was interesting to get the side stories, not just – and that was the whole theme of the book, not just the X's and O's, not every three-hour play. We want to hear – Stories about the game, but a little bit of some of the other things as well. Yeah, and you can get those stories in the first 50 Super Bowls, how football championship, how football's championships were won, and that's on Amazon, Ed, right? It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble. In fact, well, there'll be some book signings going to announce coming up soon. Uh, it should be in the bookstores this week, so you can get it online. You can get it in person. And we're, we're very excited about it because I, I'll just tell you one thing about it. It was very humbling. You could sit here and hear these guys tell these stories and the things you learned and how open they were about their experiences. Very humbling to see it. We're very proud to be a part of it. And I was 
glad to have you here as a part of the show. So that's Ed Bankin. And Ed, where can we find you on Twitter, by the way? You can find me at, at Ed Bankin, surprisingly. Very, very you know deep thought to try to come up with my Twitter handle when I first joined Twitter. But of course, we'll have Eagles coverage and coverage throughout on both our stations too throughout the year. Yeah, no doubt. So that is Ed Bankin. I'm Vince Quinn. Thanks for joining us here on BGN Radio. We'll talk to you soon. Ross, reload the Nina Ross. Settle metal when I'm focused on the green Dinero. Hocus Pocus, Gucci Lopez, cake with baking soda. Cake for soldiers move away from Maine to Nova Scotia. Bang revolvers, problem solvers, that and pain the mothers. Lost a child, clips you play when they hear the loud. Nightmares, walking dead cause they sleep in bed. You eat the sheep or shit, be scared and cut to pieces. I lust for custom coops with the honey mustard features. Butterfly doors are hoarding, makes wine or sober. Her beauty stunning, plus she funny. That's